Um, very good. So let's get into our books. We left off on page 20, um, Objections Overruled. Remember, this was a, a chapter that we were going through that Christianity is anti-intellectual, and we're going to see how philosophy, science, mathematics, and technology, and how Christianity promotes education for, for all, and, uh, specifically from the great the institution of baptism passage, uh, and uh, go and baptize and teach. So let's see at the bottom of page 20 how philosophy, science, mathematics, and technology has been guided by the Christian faith. Not only did Christianity promote education at all levels, it also fostered genius. In the 17th century, many of the greatest thinkers were Christians. Their belief that God created a coherent cosmos, um, that word cosmos is, is intentional there because it's a Greek word. And when... Um, um, when John talks about uh, Jesus uh, saving the world uh, and, and coming to the world to save the world, John uses that word cosmos. So cosmos is a much bigger word than just the world. Uh, it's intentional uh, that he uses this word cosmos. So when you see that word cosmos, it, it, you know, when you hear it translated world, it's kind of like, okay, our world, but what about aliens? You know, <laughs> does the gospel extend, you know, to aliens or far out places? Um, yes, of course. It's the whole cosmos was affected by God since he's the creator. Their belief that God created a coherent cosmos led to a grand synthesis of philosophy, science, mathematics, and technology. For example, Rene Descartes developed his philosophical analysis of mind and matter, both to defend the existence of the soul and God and to provide a foundation for physics. He developed, he developed analytic geometry, which makes the connection between algebra and geometry most familiar to students today in Cartesian coordinates. This system allows one to explore the geometry of matter in motion. It is essential to future advances in physics. Descartes himself proposed laws of physics later adopted and modified form by Isaac Newton. The inspiration for Newton's belief in coherent, Universal Laws of Nature was explained in his essay, General Scolium. It is the theological conviction that this most elegant system of the sun, planets, and comets could not have arisen without the design and the dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. So we have um, here a couple of names mentioned about even the planets and their structure uh, and physics. So um, we have these guys to thank for physics and calculus and all that good stuff. Geometry, all the things we love. Yeah. How is that a poem? You know, it's interesting how, you know, a poem is a sacred thought and not the rest of the information, but that memory is held. I mean, that's the, the former saying I can go further in memory than I can write. It's not expressed in comprehension. You know, there are ways in which I, there are ways I read and interpret something. So, mm -hmm. yes, we have thought and we have all this capacity, but I don't deny that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What we would call, I mean, you even see it at, at Cartesian dualism, um, where he, he, he says, yes, we are made up of mind and body, which um, is right and good, but 
you're right. People took it the wrong way, and they said then that the body is just a toy, right? The body is it's, it's just something for our pleasure or just for us to use. Um, and, and so the, the, the use of those two things, you know, it, and that, that's a really good point, Jessica, because that happened also, happens also with Luther. I mean, any wisdom that we get that God teaches us, you know, we, we can misuse it. But there are people who've used Luther, uh, like in Germany and various other places, they say, oh, Luther was important because he taught that we don't have to live under the man, right? He taught us to rebel against authority. And there are a lot of people that believe that was Luther's main point. And we would say, no, no, no. Luther's main point is spiritual. That's, that's what he would say. So yeah, that, thank you for sharing that. That is absolutely true, um, that um, our flesh will always misuse the wisdom of God for these various things. How was France? <laughs> That's great. Okay, uh, very good. Thank you. Uh, some other extraordinary Christian polymaths around this time included Wilhelm Schickard, Blaise Pascal, and Gottfried Leibniz. Schickard was a Lutheran pastor, a professor both of Hebrew and Oriental languages and of astronomy, and a personal associate of Johannes Kepler. On the basis of correspondence with Kepler, including a diagram, it is now widely believed that Schickard created the world's first mechanical calculator, although no working example survived. It was capable of addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. Schickard likely developed this device to assist Kepler in his laborious astronomical computations. Although not a full computer in the modern sense, it had no memory and could not be programmed, it was an important step in the development of automated problem-solving machines. Independently and shortly thereafter, Pascal developed a similar device, the Pascaline, which could only add and subtract to help his father's work as a tax collector. Leibniz made further refinements, and his stepped reckoner served as the standard calculator designed for the next two centuries. Yet, Pascal's interests went far beyond technology. His most famous work, um, Pensee, uh, thoughts uh, consists of notes he intended before his early death to develop into a systematic defense of the Christian faith. It is a profound examination of the paradoxical nature of man. Pascal argues that man is a riddle that only the Christian faith can decipher. Man is wretched because he falls short of the moral standard that he knows he should meet. Yet he is also great because he is aware of this fact. He discerns that the God-shaped infinite abyss in his being can only be filled by God. This is precisely the claim of the Christian faith. It is why God became man in Jesus Christ. There's another ancient thinker, St. Augustine, and did y'all recognize what Pascal said here? That um, there is a riddle, man is wretched because he falls short. Um, there is a God-shaped infinite abyss in his being. Do any of y'all know what St. Augustine said with that? Kind of, kind of this idea, Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find our rest in thee. That St. Augustine, if you see a picture of him, you can tell it's St. Augustine because his heart will be on fire. Because he has this saying, our hearts are restless. Our hearts are on fire until they find their rest in thee. 
So this idea of a God-shaped hole, if you will, in our hearts, um, you know, the Bible doesn't quite say that. The Bible says our heart is a cesspool of, <laughs> of, of sin and the place where sin and rebellion originates. But yes, St. Saint Augustine and Pascal picks up on this, this idea that, we, that man is a riddle and it can only be solved by faith. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say God is a riddle to be solved by faith. He says man. We, you know, we can't tackle God. Um, so Pascal, uh, that's one thing that he, he offers to us. Pascal, next paragraph, also developed modern probability theory. In addition to its value for modern statistical sciences, Pascal saw its importance for the defense of the Christian faith. When considering which religion scriptures bear the marks of being the true word of God, Pascal understood that the Christian Bible is unique. It makes many independent prophecies fulfilled in the life of one man, Jesus Christ. Since probabilities multiply, their joint fulfillment has very low probability. And what crowns it all is that it was foretold, so that no one could say it was the effect of chance. Pascal believed the evidence decisively favored Christianity. In his famous wager, he argued that even if it did not, one had nothing to lose and everything to gain by believing. There is nothing to gain but everything to lose by disbelieving. Have any of y'all heard that before? This argument, what's it called here? He mentioned it. Pascal's wager. Where the, I was taught in philosophy that Pascal, he, he had a, these friends, and they would go off and they'd go gambling and they would then end up being drunk and in jail. And Pascal was really worried about them. And he's trying to talk to his friends and trying to teach them repentance and talk with them. And so Pascal came up with what's called Pascal's Wager. And he said, guys, I'm asking, I know I'm asking you a lot to give up gambling and getting drunk and doing all this stuff. He says, but, but you're gambling for fun. He says, now let's, let's consider our life a gamble. Let's consider your life where you need to hedge your bets. And he says, if Christianity is real, there's a lot. You, you need to be ready to sacrifice a lot for this. You need to put a pretty heavy wager down on the table if Christianity is real in changing your life. And he said, but also think of it this way. If Christianity is not real, what do you lose? You don't lose anything. In fact, you're going to be healthy. You're going to be moral. You're not going to be laying in the ditch drunk the next day because all of you tell me, what does that friend always say? Maybe you've said it yourself. I'm never drinking again. You know, uh, who's laughing? Who's laughing? <laughs> Who knows this? Who knows this feeling? Um, you know, how many times you hear that? You know, and, and so Blaise Pascal, he was, he was like, guys, you know, take this wager. Take this gamble. If Christianity is real, you will be saved. If it's not... You've got nothing to lose. Does anybody know what CS, how C.S. Lewis worded that? C.S. Lewis said, if Christianity is real, it's the most important thing in life. But if Christianity is, how, how does he say it? If Christianity is not real, then it's of no, no subsequence. Then, then you're a moral person that everybody likes if you lead a good life. So Pascal, he kind of, it's not, I mean, it, it's not really, we don't, we don't think it's that great of an argument uh, in defense of the faith, but it, it's, it's pretty basic. 
It's pretty basic, you know. And we got to think of who Pascal was talking to. He was talking to gamblers. And so you have to admire his desire to, to take the people who he's trying to, to convert or trying to call back to the church. And he's saying, look, if you're willing to gamble, think of your life and the Christian faith as a gamble. Uh, what, you know, this is, this is not just, you know, a day or two. This is for eternity. Um, so Pascal's wager is, is kind of the beginning of, of, of apologetics, that you take note of who you're talking to and you try to form your, your argument using God's word guided by the Holy Spirit to convince people of the truth of the gospel. Um, so Pascal, it's kind of a, you know, kind of a silly wager, but we, we, we respect that he was trying to save and actually talking about the gospel to his friends. Uh, and that was a good and honorable thing. Pascal's wager. Page 22 at the bottom. Leibniz also had extraordinary wide interests. With Newton, he was co-developer of calculus. Awesome. Essential to modern physics. But he also defended the Christian faith. Baruch Spinoza had developed a fatalistic system in which everything happened as a necessary consequence of the divine nature. Why do anything? God's going to make happen what's going to happen, right? That's kind of a fatalistic thing, right? Why, why does it matter? God's will is going to be done. This led to the unorthodox conclusion that miracles are impossible. There is no human free will, and even evil cannot really exist. Leibniz countered that God's will could include both norms, regularities, and exceptions to those norms, so that laws of nature and miracles can coexist. In his Discourse on Metaphysics, Leibniz also explained how humans can have free will and hence retain responsibility for sin. Right? It's kind of like, if I don't have free will, how can I be blamed for my sin? If I was born a sinner, what can I do? What difference does it make? But since God knows every choice we will ever make, he can turn even evil choices to good ends, as God used Judas's betrayal to save mankind through Christ's atoning sacrifice. And you see this often, too, um, that uh, when is it a lot of times when we become more intense in our prayer life? When do we start praying more? When bad things happen, right? When, when we get sick, a loved one we get sick, one of our kids is in trouble. Um, yeah, God uses bad things for our good. And, and that's definitely a, a truth of the Christian faith. That it's not fatalistic. It's even it, when we do see things, right? God calls us to pray for the desires of our heart. Someone is sick. The doctors say there's no hope. There's nothing wrong. We could we still pray for God to heal them. We can pray for miracles. That shows trust that God will do what He sees fit, and He will He will um, step aside natural law to accomplish what He wants in a miracle. The creative arts. Christianity focused, fostered genius not only in, analytical, in analytic areas, but also in the creative arts. For example, Albrecht, who knows German? How do you pronounce that umlaut? Yeah, I know. It's fun, isn't it? I just like hearing other people say it. Albrecht Dürer. <laughs> you guys need a little bit more phlegm, right? For example, Albrecht Dürer, who was highly sympathetic to Luther, and Lucas Cronach the Elder, a personal friend of Luther, created magnificent works of art to support the devotional life of Christians. To combat the human tendency to idolize images, 
Cronach developed the Wittenberg style in which minimalized, flattened images serve as emblems or illustrations of something greater than themselves. In his portraits, Cronach combated the ideal of the flourishing Renaissance man. He depicted our conflicted nature and showed the biblical truth that we are simultaneously saints and sinners. J.S. Bach, regarded as one of the greatest composers of all time, developed extraordinarily sophisticated, multi-layered music that sounds beautiful, lifts the human spirit, and conveys profoundly Christian themes. Craig Parton argues for Bach's greatness in Christian liberty, the arts, and J.S. Bach. Bach understood the depths of his personal sin and the fallenness of the world, mastered whatever medium he attempted, saw all music as pedagogical, and reveled in his freedom in Christ. He thereby found the very best means to communicate Christ to the people of his time and of all times. Christianity is not anti-intellectual. It promotes education at every level and fosters genius in philosophy, science, mathematics, technology, and the creative arts. Many of the intellectual advances that modern secularists take for granted would likely never have occurred without the Christian faith. And indeed, you can see that in some societies that are pagan, um, you know, that, I mean, what pagan society, you know, that, you know, does some of these pagan things we hear in the Bible, like the Canaanites, that sacrifices their children to gods, that uh, thinks that there are these uh, gods that control the ways of the world, you know, which of, I mean, are there some of those cultures that you can name that have survived as long as, as the Christian culture or a culture that is based on the natural law or the word of God as natural law? I don't think there are. You know, you talk about Mayans, you talk about Incas, you know, all these various, I mean, you could even talk about, you know, Christian society in Europe, right? Even in Europe, though, they have the churches in many regards. This is one of the sad things about Germany, right? The place, the birthplace of the Reformation. The Lutheran churches there are empty. That when a society starts wandering away from the word of God, it's going to become more paganistic, more, you know, what does St. Paul say on, on Mars Hill? I can see you are a very spiritual people. I see a God here to this, a God here, a God there. And, and then he says, you know, the, the altar to the unknown God. Well, let me tell you, I know God. And then he preaches to them. So you wander away from Christianity and natural law as revealed in God's word. This understanding that the, the world is a world of, of order. God is not a God of chaos. Um, but you start leaving those things and you will worship false gods and your society will become debased. Mm -hmm. Yep. <coughs> okay, um, but uh, it should teach us to value and to all the more be ready to tell people that we have, uh, I wrote a newsletter article a couple years ago saying, you know, we have a better story. We have, Christians, we have a better story. We have a better story of mercy and forgiveness and excitement and joy in life uh, that 
the worst enemy, the greatest challenge non-Christian societies have to face, death and suffering. We not only have an answer for it, but we have uh, an ability given by the Holy Spirit to look at suffering and death and laugh <laughs> and be joyful in the midst of the world, just tries to push it away and say, we can't deal with that, so we're not going to talk about it. And we say, oh, no, let's talk about it because <laughs> we've got an answer, and it's pretty great. Uh, that death is rendered powerless. Uh, so we don't ever forget that we have a better story, uh, and it's a story you know, written in the blood of, of God himself uh, for our sake. It's pretty great, uh, a good defense. So that's why it's great we have this book to begin this very basic understanding and, and skills on defending the faith. Uh, any other thoughts on that Christianity is anti-intellectual? The accusation. Yeah. That's what I like about this, you know. Yeah. Yeah. The, those periodicals like that and conferences like Jessica mentioned really sort of bring to light a lot of the and really, you know, some of these guys, some of these great thinkers, you know, at I mean, take whatever you want. You can take these guys, you can also take like Luther and some of these other theologians that at the time they weren't they weren't they weren't that well known, right? I mean, in their circles they were but it takes, you know, it's not until after you're dead and gone, right, that the world finally catches up and gives thanks for it. So, I mean, imagine, you know, some of these, some of these guys, they weren't, you know, and that's one of the things, too, like um, uh, Handel, George Friedrich Handel, masterpiece and the Messiah and his various pieces. Uh, some of these, a lot of these guys died poor, you know, uh, Luther and a lot of the Lutheran theologians, you know, I, I mean, the world doesn't know them. They, they could care less. And, and even some of these great artists and people who did these great works, they all died poor because they weren't, they weren't accepted at their time. But, yeah, so there's still hope for some of these scientists of art. There's hope for you, B. Your great thoughts and achievements will be recognized. <laughs> right? Well, we do have that as Christians, right? The, the, the promise of, of, uh, that God knows all that we do, right? The sheep and the goats, right? Matthew 25 when they're standing before God and Jesus is bragging about you before the Father. Isn't that cool to think about that? And the, the sheep are standing there before God saying, God, I, I don't remember doing all this stuff. And, and he says, you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this. And, and he's bragging about you, right? You remember Job? Remember how Job got into trouble? Uh, when, when, why the devil came after him? Because God says, hey, devil. What do you think of my servant Job? He's, he's pretty awesome. Because the book of Job is about God sustaining his saints by faith. So God's going to brag about us. I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, and we, we don't even see it. You know, we don't do things to be recognized. We don't do things for accolades. 
Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Um, but God says, you know, there will be rewards and recognition. So do good things. Uh, life here, you, even now in this life, um, you know, honor and recognition, we strive for those things as Christians. Uh, we're not fatalistic. Oh, well. Uh, I'm saved by, uh, what is this? I like using this magnet my mom has on her refrigerator. It says, my house is so messy because I'm saved by grace and not good works. <laughs> like, mom, she said, yeah, I know. It's not theologically good, but it's a fun magnet. So, yeah, okay. All right, any other thoughts? Okay, uh, real quick, uh, I've got three minutes and I'm going to take it. Um, here, for the next one, the text of the New Testament cannot be trusted. Uh, that's what these handouts are. What I have here for you, this black and white, this is a Greek New Testament. This is the, the Bible um, that, that pastors, uh, sort of theologians, use to read the Greek. Okay? And the reason why that's important is what I said a couple weeks ago about how uh, apologetics and, and thinking as Christians, you, you want to get to the source, the fountain. And so we look to the scriptures as written in their first language, uh, a Greek, and we've learned it and studied it. And if you look at this, you see at the top, it says kata. That, that's, those, you can kind of see that, right? The Greek letters, they kind of look like our English when they're alphabet. Kata, that's like of or from. Kata, and then that next word, that's John. Yohane, um, I or J O A N N H A N, Kata Yohane. So according to John, so the Greek New Testament, the first Bible, it was not it was not necessarily known as the Book of John, but it was known as the message of Jesus Christ according to John or from John. It was based on eyewitness testimony, right? So Luke is Kata Luke. Kata, Mark, right? Um, so that's, and then right underneath it, you see all this Greek text here. That's the text of, uh, this is John 16, right? Uh, verses 16 to 23 right there. You can see the numbers. Under that, you see that little line? Under that Greek text there, you see a bunch of weird stuff. That's called the apparatus. And what that does is throughout the text here, there will be little notes, little footnote marks. Down here in the bottom in the apparatus, it tells you, hey, this word here where it says, um, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That word only begotten, it's going to say, some people who copied the text made a mistake and they put... Um, only born instead of only begotten. Or we're going to change it to only begotten instead of only born son because we want to give special recognition to Jesus as the begotten son of God, meaning he didn't have a beginning. He was born, but he didn't have a beginning. So they'll make a footnote there and say these copyists, these people who copied the earliest copies of the New Testament, they made this change. And it's, it, was this, it was this document that we found, and it was in this volume, or in this chapter, in this volume, in this book, on this page. That's what all that little writing under here is, is it gives testimony 
to why there might be something different in this Greek text from another Greek text. So Christianity and the writers of the New or the copiers of the New Testament, they're copying down from you know, the original text, the original gospels, and they're writing down because they want to copy it, and, and they can either misspell things, or they can say, hmm, I want to make this a little more clear for the reader, but I'm going to put a note here to tell you that I did this. And then they'll put the original, and then they'll down in the bottom, they'll say, but this is what is meant, right? Or I translated it this way to make a difference. So Christianity has a long trail, right? And this was then followed by others who knew the original text and said, oh, yeah, we're witnesses to this. This was a change, and this was it. So we have kept track of all these differences in the texts that we find. And textual criticism is what he's going to talk about, is when you take two texts and you say, okay, this one is younger than this one, but this one has more words. Um, let's see, which, which seems to be the more faithful account? On the back then of this is what these texts look like when they find them. This is, this is a Greek New Testament, Testament papyrus. Um, some of the earliest ones, right? There's no spacing between the letters. It's all just a block of consonants. Some even are, you know, Hebrew is missing the vowels. Some Greek is missing the vowels as well. And it's all just brrr, brrr, letter, 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 no spaces. Why would they do that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Conserve paper. They knew how important this was, what they were doing. And so copyists, they would then also, as they're keeping track of what they're translating and copying, they keep an exact count of the letters, the characters, and they have that number and they would write it down. And so if you're copying something, then you count your characters and you say, yep, I've got 593 characters. I'm, I've got the same characters as what I'm copying here. So this is what it looked like, and this is a lot of times what they translated, translated from or that they copied. So we'll get into it a little bit more about can we trust this? Can we trust this? How many different languages it's gone through? How many copies? Right? This is something that is a strength of the Christian faith, but also people will claim is a weakness, that it's kind of like that telephone game right? When, when, you know, uh, I, I know I'm going to get calls from people on the phone. Pastor, I hear you're leaving and going to Indiana. <laughs> it's like, no, not yet. I haven't said anything. I just let people know I got a call. But it's that game. You know, you tell something to somebody and it goes around circle. And by the time it comes back to you, it's completely different than the original message. So that's the accusation against the Bible. And we have good arguments apologetical, we have a good defense against that accusation that the Bible has all these changes and problems in it. Yes? Surprise, surprise, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. No kidding. And so this is one of the things that he brought up was that apparently 
Joseph Smith looked at the King James Version of the Bible. That's right. And said, uh-oh, we have this problem and this problem and this problem. So therefore, the Bible's been adulterated. Let's fix it. So if you don't know that what you're preaching and talking about here is where the original come from, you don't understand the textual criticism, you don't understand mm-hmm. the faithfulness to the original document, yeah. you're sort of lost. And it's kind so of... It's really helpful to know. It's funny, too, to take that argument. You can, you can turn this argument on its face, like in particular, okay, with the Mormons then, and we can say, oh, you have a Bible, uh, you know, another testament of a latter-day testament of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? What, what language did Joseph Smith get that in? You know, oh, it was, it was, he found it in some secret Egyptian hieroglyphic, you know, thing, and it's like, okay, so Joseph Smith, how... He translated it. Are you sure it wasn't adulterated? Oh, okay, okay, fine, yeah. Well, then how about all the other languages, right? Book of Mormon has also been translated many times. Yeah, yeah, like that. And also, too, people who say, oh, you can't trust the Bible because it was copied or written by men. And it's like, okay, so what are you going, what what are you putting your trust in? I trust in science. And who writes down science? Men people, right? So you're going to say the Bible is, is can't, you can't trust it? Well, then you can't trust science. You can't trust your, hi, my favorite G-man. How's it going? Um, awesome. I like your shirt. You got fish on your shirt today. That's good. So um, there, are, there are some really great ways that we can turn these arguments on them, but I, I'm, really, I'm really glad to hear of that discussion in that chat. Um, Mormons um, are, are fun to talk to. Uh, that, that's really good. Good, good. That's great. Okay, let's close with prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you uh, teach us wisdom, Uh, not only wisdom according to your word, but you also guide us in wisdom in this life and in this world. Help us to continue to be students, O Lord, both of your world and of this, both of your word and of your world, that as we study the, the book of nature, we also indeed would study your book of life and that that is where we find our comfort and refuge when things don't make sense. When we are tossed about in a sea of uncertainty, we know your son Jesus Christ has been crucified, raised from the dead, ascended to your right hand so that we can be certain and sure that we have eternal life. Nothing can separate us from your love and Christ Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, thanks for your time, everyone.